Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 17 of the podcast in which we will look at the glorious, glorious chapter 15 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe titled Deeper Magic from Before the Dawn of Time. And this chapter is an extremely important one, a very special one uh, to the story, a very special one to me personally. And I, I think any person who has the slightest familiarity with the Narnia stories uh, has a, a familiarity with this scene. It's the climax of the novel and probably one of the most enduring and memorable moments in the entire series. Um, and it, it makes up the third of this trilogy of chapters, this sort of trinity of chapters in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where we see perhaps the closest parallel to the gospel itself in the book. Uh, it starts with chapter 13, with uh, deep magic from the dawn of time. So uh, in that chapter, um, Aslan meets with the White Witch and um, they strike this bargain, this exchange. So it starts with that chapter, deep magic from the dawn of time in chapter 13 as the first of the three. And then chapter 14 with the triumph of the witch, we have the actual execution of Aslan as the second installment in this trilogy of chapters. And then the fruition of it, the culmination of it comes in this chapter, chapter 15, deeper magic from before the dawn of time. And I would almost suggest to uh, any new believer in the faith or any person who is beginning to spark an interest in the gospel, if they are passionate about literature, I would say read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and read closely chapters 13, 14, and 15. Deep Magic from the Dawn of Time, The Triumph of the Witch, and Deeper Magic from Before the Dawn of Time. Because in each of these chapters that makes up this trilogy of gospel chapters in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have in uh, miniature, in fantasy miniature, the, the three-step sequence of the gospel. That in uh, chapter 13, Deep Magic from the Dawn of Time, we get an indication of the law that the White Witch appeals to Aslan on the basis of real law, law that is carved into the very stone itself of the stone table, a law that is uh, in place and has been in place throughout Narnia's existence. It's deep magic from the dawn of time. It is the governing ordinances of Narnian law and order, and Aslan doesn't question it. Aslan doesn't try to sidestep it. It is the deep law that the White Witch knows well and that she appeals to in order to convict Aslan in Edmund's place. That when a traitor, uh, when there is treason, when a traitor has sinned, blood must be shed. That is the deep magic. And so the first of this trilogy of chapters, chapter 13, uh, provokes an understanding of the law that sin has consequences. Treason requires bloodshed. And in the gospel account, that's the first thing that all sinners must realize, that uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there is a perfect and holy law to the character of God that every single one of us has trespassed. 
there is deep magic within the character and holiness of God that we have sullied, that we have broken, and therefore blood must be shed. Sin must be punished and the law condemns. So the first of this sequence, chapter 13, Deep Magic from the Dawn of Time, sets out the concept of law and sin. The second of this sequence, chapter 14, The Triumph of the Witch, brings about the execution of that, where it seems to give ultimate victory and ultimate finality to evil. Uh, Just as much as in the gospel, uh, the first step for us is to recognize our sin. The second step is to see what Jesus did, that Jesus paid the price and the punishment of that sin, that Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God in punishment of sin by assuming all of mankind's sin and atoning for it on the cross. And that, to any first glance, would look at like the triumph of the witch, which is the title of that second chapter in this sequence, that it would look like great victory was had by the forces of evil, which Good Friday in the Christian faith very much looked like that, that here is the king of the Jews, here is the Messiah, here is the uh, the foreshadowed one, the prophesied one, the son of God, um, here is the what we believed to be the personification of Isaiah 53, and he's dead, really dead. He really died. And as we'll see in a moment at the beginning of chapter 15, deeper magic, that Aslan really died. It wasn't a smoke and mirrors gimmick. It wasn't a charade. Uh, it wasn't some kind of swooning theory. Aslan really died, and Jesus really died. And so the middle of that trilogy of chapters here, the middle of the gospel, is the cross. But it's not the end of the story. And so chapter 15 here is the third of three. It is the final step in this gospel sequence that began with the law and began with sin. It centers in uh, the atonement for that law. It centers in Christ's sacrifice and Aslan's sacrifice where he is executed. And it finishes in this third of three. It finishes with deeper magic from before the dawn of time. And so you see already that motif of further up and further in winding its way into this chapter where the ultimate truth of things, not just what we can see and perceive and not just what we can make sense of, but the ultimate truth of things is deeper than we can possibly imagine and far more eternal than we can possibly imagine. It's deeper magic from before the dawn of time. What God's story is cannot be contained by our finitude. The fact that we can't quite see and perceive all of the workings of the thing doesn't mean it's not working. And this is something that Lewis will say par excellence in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader with Ramandu. Uh, And it's one of these lines that uh, you'll hear me quote all the time. It's just one of those pivotal lines in the whole series where Eustace says, in our world, a star is just a burning ball of gas. How can a star come down to earth and talk with us. In our world, a star is just a burning ball of gas. And Ramandu says, even in your world, that is not what a star is, but simply what it is made of. And that uh, opens up this aspect of Lewis's worldview that is crucial 
to understand in order to see Lewis's imagination and Lewis's theology at work in Narnia that what is ultimately true and what is ultimately good and what is ultimately beautiful must transcend our mere human limitations and our senses. This is a fallen world. We are unable to see all of the grandeur and the glory that God has charged the cosmos with. One day we will. Paul talks about this in Corinthians. He says, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we'll see face to face. That that we are covered. He says this in um, in Corinthians as well. He says, we, we see through a veil, that we are veiled, and we require the Holy Spirit of God to illuminate what is ultimately true and good and beautiful. And so just because we can't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. And that was the white witch's folly, that she couldn't see the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. Her mind was centered on the deep magic from the dawn of time, the law. That that was her focus, and she acted on it. But the gift, the free gift of grace, is that there is more to the story. That is God's free gift to us, the promise that there is more to the story, which is a comfort to us because no matter what we experience in this fallen world, no matter what shadows we encounter, we can walk in faith, trusting that there is always, always, always more to the story, that there is great light beyond the darkness. And though sorrow lasts through the night, joy comes in the morning, um, that out of uh, evil and out of suffering and out of darkness comes great good and great light, ex malo bonum. Out of darkness and out of evil comes good. And so we get to chapter 15, deeper magic from before the dawn of time. It opens with the white witch's declaration, which carries over from the previous chapter, the triumph of the witch. And one of the things she says is pretty striking. She says to all of her crew, now follow me all and we will set about what remains of this war. It will not take us long to crush the human vermin and the traitors now that the great fool, the great cat, lies dead. And I want to center on that phrase she uses, calling Aslan the great fool. That this is how evil works. And indeed, it's how evil is working today. Uh, it's like in Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. That what evil does is it changes the definitions of things. That love is love and human rights are human gods. That it just changes and um, warps and manipulates definitions where good is now evil and evil is now good. And that's what the white witch is doing here. She's calling Aslan for his sacrificial death a fool. And yet we know by the end of this chapter that what Aslan has done has done is the wisest and noblest act of love in all of Narnian history, just as much as Christ's offering is the greatest act of love, it is no foolish act at all. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, the natural person, the person functioning off of a worldview of nature, simply nature, uh, the unspiritual person, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, 
and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is where the white witch is by calling Aslan the great fool. And any person who would just simply look at the surface of what has happened might be tempted to say the same thing, that the message of the gospel looks like a foolish one, that God became a man and died for rebels, for sinners, He put on human flesh. It astounded the Greeks. It astounded the Jews. It has astounded uh, 2,000 years of history since the action that Jesus' message is not one of power hunger and is not one of uh, narcissism and is not one of monomania or dictatorship or tyranny. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And that seems foolish. And here the white witch is saying it as well. The great fool. And as she says that, they all flee to go find Peter and Susan and Lucy and finish this war once and for all now that Aslan's dead. Susan and Lucy are still hiding behind the bushes. Lewis says they felt the specters go by them like a cold wind. And they felt the ground shake beneath them under the galloping feet of the minotaurs. And overhead there went a flurry of foul wings and a blackness of vultures and giant bats. Lewis in his descriptive power, is able to evoke this scene of despair that the sudden return in Narnia to the cold that governed all of the land for 100 years, uh, the White Witch's curse seems to be creeping back into things as they feel the cold, bitter wind of the specters and the minotaurs and the flurry of foul wings racing past them to finish a war. This is a low point for Susan and Lucy, and indeed for the first-time reader, where the hero of the story has been killed. What good could possibly come of this? And I mentioned Lewis's descriptive power. This chapter is teeming with uh, Lewis's artful, imaginative style. He says this, As soon as the wood was silent again, Susan and Lucy crept out onto the open hilltop. The moon was getting low, and thin clouds were passing across her, but still they could see the shape of the lion lying dead in his bonds. And down they both knelt in the wet grass and kissed his cold face and stroked his beautiful fur, what was left of it, and cried till they could cry no more. And then they looked at each other, and held each other's hands for mere loneliness, and cried again, and then again were silent. There's a way Lewis has in writing that is just unmatched, where he is able to pair this extraordinary experience of sorrow and loss and grief. He'll do it later in his life with Grief Observed, uh, that small account of uh, his response to his wife Joy's death. Uh, He is just able to describe pain and grief and fear and sorrow so well. But he pairs it with this sense of longing and this uh, evocation of the beautiful, that even in the midst of our greatest grief and our greatest sorrow, Lewis is somehow able to remind us that beauty abounds. That, That passage I described Uh, that I read describes beautiful fur kneeling in wet grasses, the moon coming low, thin clouds passing. It evokes the scene where sorrow and grief are honored 
as experiences that are temporary. They will not be eternal. There will come a day where all will be made right and sorrow will be no more. All shall be well and every manner of thing will be well, T.S. Eliot says. All will be well, but even in the midst of our pains now and our griefs now and our sorrows now, Lewis reminds us that there is this hopeful echo and this trace of beauty that abounds, even if it's only in the periphery. And also that uh, that picture of Susan and Lucy weeping until they could cry no more reminds me of uh, The Tempest, where Caliban cries to dream again. He awakens from a dream of bliss and beauty, and he awakens to see his sorrowful state as this monstrous Caliban uh, in Shakespeare's great play. And Shakespeare says, he cried, when I woke, I cried to dream again. It's the same sort of pairing that Shakespeare did there that Lewis is able to do, where even in the midst of hurt and sorrow, there is a sense of loveliness and a promise of hope. Even if we can't feel it at the time, it exists. Throughout the rest of the chapter, up until Aslan's resurrection, Lewis will continue to use the words cold, dark, colder and colder, uh, silence, and so on to sustain this scene that he has evoked. But then we get to this uh, this beautiful passage that is along the same lines, where Lewis is describing Susan's and Lucy's sorrow. But Alan Jacobs, who wrote a fantastic biography of Lewis called The Narnian, uh, where he maps uh, the unity of Lewis's creative imagination. It's a beautiful book. But in, uh, in an interview with Alan Jacobs, he talked about uh, Lewis's unique narrative voice. That one of the reasons he suggests that filming Narnia, adapting Narnia to film, is difficult is because it's it's next to impossible to capture the essence of Lewis's narrative voice as a narrator in film, because you don't have narrators in film typically. Uh, and yet in the books, you can get the sense of Lewis's unique narrative voice. Jacob says Lewis had a way of talking to children. And this passage is one that he quotes, and I want to read it as well, just to give you a sense of what Jacobs was talking about. Here's Lewis describing Susan and Lucy. I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing is ever going to happen again. At any rate, that was how it felt to these two. Now, Jacob suggests here that this is Lewis uh, putting a pause on the narrative to assure uh, his children readers that everything will be okay, that he assumes this sort of avuncular narrative voice as uh, this way of talking very warmly directly to the reader where he references the book. I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were. Uh, but he also takes this moment to step out of the narrative and talk to the reader in a way of confidence. He is confiding in the reader. He says, if you have been this sad and this miserable, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears le left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing is ever going to happen again. And you get this assurance as the reader that Lewis knows 
what he's talking about, that he knows grief of this kind and caliber. And indeed, we know when Lewis was nine, he lost his mom to cancer. And he has written about that. And surprised by joy, he writes about how he felt that every stable and certain uh, piece of terrain that he stood on at that point had had sunk into the deeps like the island of Atlantis. He said nothing was stable anymore. And another image he evokes is when he talks about being nine and and hearing the pained conversations of adults and doctors happening above him. That when Lewis lost his mother as a boy, he he knows intensely what it means to cry until you have no more tears left in you. And this is something he'll echo again in The Magician's Nephew with Diggory and his mom. That there's a sort of sorrow here and a nerve that Lewis is tapping into, and he is confiding in that brief moment with his audience, with his reader. And that warmth that's connected where Lewis is able to reach out of the book and straight to our shoulders to say, it's going to be okay. That there is a grief and I know it just as well as you know it. And it reminds us that we are not alone. As someone once said, we read to know that we're not alone. I believe Lewis writes and speaks with that sort of assurance that he is telling his reader directly that they are not alone. At that point, Susan and Lucy notice the mice coming and untying the ropes with their teeth, gnawing after it. Um, and later on, we'll discover that in Prince Caspian, uh, Aslan will tell Reepicheep, the mouse, that it was out of a great fondness and gratitude for uh, his people, the mice, for uh, chewing off the ropes in this scene that he granted them uh, the gift of speech, the gift of talking. But here we almost see this nihilistic worldview from the girls where it says, at first she took no interest in this. What did it matter? Nothing mattered now. And this is quite a step for Lucy. Lucy, who was filled with awe and wonder. Lucy, who was the eternal light of the story, the, the character of hope. It says, what did it matter? Nothing mattered now. Uh, but that uh, sentiment is not to last long. Um we get this paragraph right before uh, the great crack from the stone table, right before the climax. We get this moment where uh, Lewis is describing this panorama scene around um, the stone table as the sun is starting to come up, that it's moving from the middle of the dark night into the early pale light of dawn. And he sets about describing it quite beautifully. And he res resurrects, sorry, he, he brings up, again, some earlier language um, that he had used previously with a great deal of symbolic power. He says this, Then at last, as they stood for a moment, Susan and Lucy, looking out towards the sea and Care Paravel, which they could now just make out, the red turned to gold along the line where the sea and the sky met, and very slowly up came the edge of the sun. Now, this is the very sentence before they hear the great noise behind them of the cracking of the stone table. This is the cusp of Aslan's resurrection. And notice what Lewis takes a moment to describe. He says that they stood for a moment looking out towards the sea, right? Looking out into the horizon at the rising sun, this image of hope and resurrection Sunday, Easter morning, towards the sea and Care Paravel which is the very seat of the prophecy. Four thrones at Caerpiravel will be occupied. Now, uh, with Aslan's death, all of that's in jeopardy, and yet they're looking toward it. So they see the sea, they see Caerpiravel, 
and the red turned to gold along the horizon. And very slowly up came the edge of the sun. Now remember earlier when we first met Aslan, there was a great deal of color symbolism. With the white witch, we had a lot of white and the red uh, deathly image of her lips. And then the, the sterile pale image of all the white that abounded. With Aslan, we saw red and gold, which red foreshadowing and predicting the uh, blood image of the atonement, the blood that Aslan shared in the shed in the previous chapter, and then the gold as this regal color. And when we saw Aslan, the banners were red and gold. His golden fur was uh, sliced open in the previous chapter and red blood comes out. So red and gold as colors of death and atonement and, and bloodshed and grace but also of image, an image of kingliness and regality, nobility. And here in the Narnian landscape, we get those colors again. The red turned to gold and up comes the edge of the sun. That This is a heralding declaration moment from Lewis of what is about to come. Right after that, he says this, At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. And that might be my favorite simile of all time. <laughs> a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. It doesn't get better than that. But here we get the, the final conclusive moment, or at least the beginning of it, that Aslan is no longer dead. The stone table has been broken, and death itself We'll start working backwards, as Aslan will say in just a moment. Um, but uh, Devin Brown has talked about this moment with, um, in his book Inside Narnia, with what all, you know, Lewis suggests far more than he explains, uh, that he is a person who suggests meaning, that we, we get small explanations of things, small explanations of prophecies and, and their fulfillment and so on, but we're really left with just a suggestion of what has happened and we get to dig around ourselves for what it might mean. Um, but in his book, he cites uh, a man named Joe Christopher who seems to think that the cracking of the stone table could have several different uh, symbolic parallels to uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. One of them perhaps being one of the clearer is that the cracking of the stone table could be symbolically connected to the tearing of the temple curtain that um, the law has been fulfilled. The uh, access to the Holy God is now available to all Narnia will be saved. Um, he references the earthquake that trembled when Jesus was crucified, perhaps something maybe even more broadly symbolic with, with the death of the grave itself the stone table evoking this sort of tombstone sort of quality when Aslan dies. But then with its cracking, we get this symbolic uh, moment of the death of death, uh, which that ties directly into Aslan's statement about death working backward, that uh, Aslan's death is undone by his resurrecting power. At any rate, the parallels to the death and resurrection of Jesus in this moment are clear popularly discussed with readers of Narnia and simply beautiful. So they hear the great cracking, deafening noise as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. Uh, they turn around to see what it is. 
And here's how Lewis describes it. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed that for a moment they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. What a, <laughs> what a great statement. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Oh, 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 cried the two girls, rushing back to the table. Oh, it, it's, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round, there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Now there's a lot to see in this moment. The first one is uh, the uh, more further parallels to Jesus's death and resurrection, that you have two women uh, visiting the spot that marked the death of the king, um, the two Marys in the gospel accounts, Susan and Lucy here, and they are told, they discover that the body is missing. So that first connection is established. But Susan's response that's really interesting to me, she says, who's done it? What does it mean? It's just a constant question from the disciples. What does it all mean? Is it magic? Is this magic? And Aslan responds, yes, it is more magic. The beauty of Aslan's resurrection, and by extension, Jesus's resurrection, is that it is not less. It is more than that which was before it. That so often we tend to think that um, the physical body that we inhabit now and the physical world that we experience now is solid and real and that anything that comes after death is less real, that will become ghostly, wispy angels in the sky, or that our experience in heaven will be somehow thinner, less physical, less solid than here. Um, there's a book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven that I just started reading, where he goes through all of these different um, biblical uh, statements on heaven, eternity, the new heavens and the new earth, where ultimate reality, ultimate transcendent eternal reality will be solid. It will be more, not less. That Jesus's resurrected body is more physical, more solid. Uh, Doug Wilson talked about this once where he said it's possible that when Jesus entered into uh, the upper room with the disciples, passing through walls as he was able to do. It's not that his resurrected body was ghostly and wispy enough to pass through the walls, but that compared to the solidity and reality of his resurrected body, the wall seemed thinner and ghostlier. That it's a the resurrection is a promise of more. It is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. The seed that is sown into the ground and dies to itself, will return out of the ground bigger, better, more glorious. The seed that is sown will return a beautiful rose. 
And the power and beauty of the rose is in the seed, but you can't see it until it has died and resurrected. And Aslan's resurrected body is a product of more magic, not less magic. It's not as though he cut corners with the deep magic. It's not that he found some sort of loophole in the deep magic. It's that he was obedient to deeper magic from before the dawn of time. There was something more going on that the white witch was too limited in her sinful vision to see. And Aslan could see it. It was deeper, more glorious. Doug Wilson talks about this like an inverse Russian doll where the deeper in you go, the bigger it gets. And how the ultimate Narnia, in the last battle you'll see this, the ultimate Narnia is greater and more glorious further up and further in you go. And here it is not less, it's more. He says it is more magic. They looked around, they're shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. And again, they have this numinous sort of response, fear with trembling, coupled with joy and laughter, where they were almost as much frightened as they were glad. That This is an awesome event that Aslan defeated death broke the stone table and returns to vindicate himself as king by conquering the white witch once and for all. Lucy says, aren't you dead, dear Aslan? And he says, not now, implying that he really was dead and now he really isn't. I mean, the, the power of the gospel is quite simple, that Jesus died for sinners and he is resurrected to live forever. And he will return to vindicate and to conquer once and for all. They try to ask if he's a ghost. Susan says, you're not a, not a, and Lewis says she couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. And the way Aslan responds to this, he stoops his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. In one fell swoop, one uh, evidential act of kindness by by proving to Susan what he didn't have to prove. It's like what Jesus did with Thomas, proving to Susan that he is real. In one act of licking her forehead, he undoes all of the coldness and the despair and the sorrow that came before. And Lewis says the warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. And incidentally, in the next chapter, we'll see the same warm breath bringing life to all of the cold stone statues in the witch's courtyard. That this is the Holy Spirit, this warm breath of Aslan as an assurance that he is who he says he is. And that we can stand free because of what Aslan has done. That the death and the resurrection of Aslan and for us, the death and resurrection of Jesus has set us free. It's the only thing that could save Edmund and you and me. It's the only thing that can save us. You know, uh, um, Joe Rigney in his book, Live Like a Narnian, it's a fantastic book, but Joe Rigney says this, Aslan shows a better and more difficult way. For though the deep magic does demand blood for treachery, it also allows substitutes. And Aslan willingly gives himself for Edmund so that the witch renounces her claim on the boy and kills Aslan in his place. Thus, deep magic is satisfied. But even this deep magic doesn't exhaust Lewis's vision of the world. There is a deeper magic still 
and it rises with the dawn on the morning after Aslan's sacrifice. Lewis reminds us that substitution is a kind of magic. Note that. Lewis reminds us that substitution is a kind of magic, a mysterious and supernatural force that transforms the world, overcoming every form of treachery. In Narnia, as in our world, deeper magic triumphs over deep magic. Through sacrifice, mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is, be- this is the beautiful promise of that glorious exchange that we saw Aslan agree to a couple chapters ago. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. You stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Glorious. And now uh, Aslan has died and he lives again, just as Jesus has died and he lives again, and we are able to live through him. And the girls rejoice, oh, you're real. You're real, oh Aslan, cried Lucy, and both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. And we get the explanation. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back, into the stillness, and the darkness before time dawned. She would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. How glorious of a statement of the gospel that a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's Stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That is what has happened to you and to me if we believe that our sin was paid for by a perfect sacrifice by the Son of God, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, right after that, we get the romp, which is another, there's another one that happens in Prince Caspian. That's glorious. We always return to the heart of Christian revelry here. If Aslan has resurrected, the first order of business is to celebrate. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's just as much as when Aslan was on the move back in chapter 11. If Aslan is on the move, if the winter is breaking, the right thing for the Narnians to do is to celebrate and have a party. And they do. At their peril, the white witch comes across them and turns them to stone. But it was the appropriate response If Aslan is on the move, we rejoice with great laughter and feasting and dancing and joy. This is the heart of Christian revelry. It is the mandatory response of those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. If he is a good God, if he is a good father who gives good gifts, rejoice. Rejoice evermore, as Paul says. And here, if Aslan is really real and he's really alive, Then let us rejoice. And they romp together. Listen to how Lewis describes it. A mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, Susan and Lucy. Now hopelessly out of their reach. Now letting them almost catch his tail. Now diving between them. Now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again. And now stopping unexpectedly 
so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy, laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. And the funny thing was that when all three finally lay together, panting in the sun, the girls no longer felt in the least tired or hungry or thirsty. What a beautiful combination of the goodness of Aslan. That whether it's like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, couldn't quite tell. They were almost as as much frightened as they were glad when they saw him. That he is a wild king. He's not a tame lion, but he is good. He is not safe, but he is good. And at the end, you get a foreshadowing to the great scene at the end of the last battle where they play and run and romp and dance and they never feel tired or hungry or thirsty. And so he puts Susan and Lucy on his back and they romp together. Uh, Paul Ford, uh, who has written on Narnia, has observed this, quote, the ecstatic romp of the lion and the girls has no equal in Lewis and perhaps none in any words of Christian imagination. Listen to that again. The ecstatic romp of the lion and the girls has no equal in Lewis and perhaps none in any words of Christian imagination. And so we'll end this episode, uh, ending the third of three, this great trilogy of chapters in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, from the deep magic to the triumph of the witch, and now to the deeper magic from before the dawn of time, with one of the most magnificent paragraphs in all of Lewis, in all of his writings. And so I want to finish this episode by reading it in its entirety. And notice the first line, what Lewis is setting up for us here. That ride was perhaps the most wonderful thing that happened to them in Narnia. Have you ever had a gallop on a horse? Think of that, and then take away the heavy noise of the hoofs and the jingle of the bit, and imagine instead the almost noiseless padding of the great paws. Then imagine, instead of the black or gray or chestnut back of the horse, the soft roughness of golden fur and the mane flying back in the wind. And then imagine you are going about twice as fast as the fastest racehorse. But this is a mount that doesn't need to be guided and never grows tired. He rushes on and on, never missing his footing, never hesitating threading his way with perfect skill between tree trunks, jumping over bush and briar and the smaller streams, wading the larger, swimming the largest of all. And you are riding not on a road, nor in a park, nor even on the downs, but right across Narnia in spring, down solemn avenues of beach and across sunny glades of oak, through wild orchards of snow-white cherry trees, past roaring waterfalls and mossy rocks and echoing caverns, up windy slopes, alight with gorse bushes, and across the shoulders of heathery mountains and along giddy ridges, and down, down, down again into wild valleys and out into acres of blue flowers. 
It's one of the most magnificent, compelling, and beautiful descriptions of the feeling of being with Jesus that I long for and I want with all my heart to be able to encounter Christ with that much glory and that much magnificence, bounding over the mountains, sweeping past snow-white cherry trees, never hesitating, never growing tired, laughing and dancing with our glorious Savior. So that finishes uh, this episode. Stay tuned next time for chapter 16, What Happened About the Statues. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.